The Metropolitan Opera Guild is the premier arts education organization dedicated to enriching the lives of children and adults through the magic and artistry of opera. To learn more about the Guild's many exciting programs and events, please visit metguild.org. everyone and welcome to the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I'm your host Naomi Baratera and the goal of our podcast is to share knowledge and insights into the operatic art form, drawing our content from a variety of different educational programs that we have going on here at Lincoln Center in New York City. Here at the Guild, we have a roster of live events happening throughout the opera season, such as pre-performance lectures, artist interviews, and opera courses that run in the afternoons, evenings, and weekends. And our podcast episodes frequently draw from these classes and events for our content. This week's episode is recorded from one of these live events that took place on March 29th, and as promised, we are happy to present Santa Fe Opera's Desiree Mays for the first time on the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Desiree can be seen giving lectures throughout the entirety of Santa Fe Opera's season, and has also produced several publications pertaining to the study of opera. We love having Desiree on our roster here at the Met Guild because she always takes such interesting slants on the operas that she discusses, often focusing on the literary sources from which the plots have been derived. Today's episode is no exception as Desiree talks about various historical and literary sources that contributed to the story of Puccini's Madama Butterfly that we all know and love. I hope you enjoy listening as she unveils insights into the real lives from which this tale is based. Madame Butterfly materializes out of the music, out of the very landscape itself. We hear her climb to the top of Higashi Hill, high above the shipping port of Nagasaki. She arrives with her friends at the top of the hill, breathless, at a place where the air is thin, a place few mortals dare to climb, a place of illusion and dreams. Along with Pinkerton, the handsome American naval officer to whom Butterfly is about to be married, we hear Butterfly before we see her, this exquisite child who charms with her manners of the East in her elaborate wedding kimono, her face painted white, her lips bright red, a symbol of happiness. At the summons, the young women, like a cloud of colorful butterflies, sing of the sun, the sea, and the sky. Butterfly has come in answer to the call of love. Pinkerton describes her as a flower whose fragrance drives him crazy with desire. This is her entrance. Imagine the scene. Oh, 
I've lost you already. I can see you're already <laughs> off in that other place. <laughs> I should just play the music for the hour. <laughs> in Pinkerton's first conversation with Sharpless, the American consul, he brags about how he enjoys laying, uh, laying claim to the flowers of every region. Butterfly is simply another to add to his collection. These lovers are at cross purposes. She is in love with a dream, but Pinkerton plans a part-time arrangement, each in love with the image or the idea of the other. Pinkerton describes her as made of the thinnest possible blown glass which shatters easily, as a figure on an exquisitely painted, lacquered Japanese screen, as a butterfly that alights with such gentle charm he cannot wait to possess her. The image of the butterfly, which is chocho in Japanese, the word, and farfalla in Italian, fits perfectly the child bride of the story, beautiful, vulnerable, light as gossamer, and easily crushed. Now, the topic I'm going to explore today is this. Is this a story, a fairy tale, a fragment of a tale that has taken on mythic proportions or is it a real story based on real people? Was there a real live young woman at the heart of the tale? Was there a son? Who is this butterfly, this Chocho-san, supposedly a tea house singer and dancer? And who was the child born of her love for the foreigner? Was there a real Madame Butterfly? From where did her story, real or imagined, come? How did four men, Pierre Lotti, John Luther Long, David Belasco, and finally Giacomo Puccini bring to life the story of Madama Butterfly. There are many answers to all of these questions, but let's answer the big question first. Yes, it seems there was a real woman on whom the story is based, and not only Butterfly, but her son as well, a man who was called Thomas Abura Guraba, and we'll get to them. So I'm going to start at the beginning and set the scene a little with the history of the closed, secret, and forbidden flower and willow world of Japan in the latter part of the 19th century. For a very long time, there had been a custom in Dejima, which is an island in Nagasaki Bay, where members of the Netherlands East India Company, which was one of the very few traders allowed into the area at the time, could enter into a brief contractual marriage with women of the licensed Mariyama quarter. The first recorded case of such a, an arrangement was Dr. Philip Franz von Siebold, who reached Dejima in August 1823 to teach and treat people at the Dutch trading post. He later became a very famous collector of Japanese culture and art. He made a temporary marriage with a girl of the district, Otaki-san, who gave birth to his daughter. Leaving his wife and child behind, Siebold returned to Germany in 1830, where he eventually married a German woman and fathered five children. Many, many years later, at age 63, he returned to Nagasaki and actually renewed his relationship with Otaki-san and his now 32-year-old daughter, Oine, whom he helped become the first female doctor in Japan. He finally returned to Germany where he died in 1866. Now, this is a true story. This is all documented. This early story complemented many reports of Western men who, 
while visiting Japan in the late 19th century, took Japanese wives on a temporary basis. Women who worked as entertainers, tea houses, or who were provided by marriage brokers, such as Goro in the opera. The Japanese, who were not quite sure how to deal with the influx of sailors, officers, and merchants who arrived in their ports once the country opened to trade, devised this system whereby a man could choose a bride, negotiate terms with her family, and live with her as long as he chose or until he left port, abandoning her and any resulting children. Once home in Europe, these men typically married women from their own countries and just forgot about their Japanese wives. In 1855, such a man, a French naval officer, sailed with his ship into Nagasaki Harbor and met a go-between, or a marriage broker, to arrange such a marriage to Okiku-san, a 17-year-old girl known as Madame Chrysanthème. Pierre Lotti, the naval officer, was a writer, and he recorded his impressions of Japan and his marriage to her in a book called Madame Chrysanthème, and that was published in Paris in 1888. Everyone read it avidly. They were dying to know what went on inside this closed community. Lottie records how he paid money to Okiku-san's family every month and how the couple lived in a house with paper walls high above the port of Nagasaki. He describes in detail the customs and traditions of Japan which had been closed for so long. Let me read you a little directly from Lottie's narrative. Here is his description of a Japanese house. What always strikes one on first entering a Japanese dwelling is the extreme cleanliness, the white and chilling bareness of the room. Over the most irreproachable mattings without a crease, a line, or a stain, I was led upstairs to the first story and ushered into a large empty room, absolutely empty. The paper walls were mounted with sliding panels, which fitting into each other can be made to disappear and all one side of the apartment opened like a veranda, giving a view of the green country and grey sky beyond. By way of a chair, they gave me a square cushion of black velvet, and behold me seated low in the middle of this large empty room, which by its very vastness is chilly. The two little women who are the servants of the house, and my very humble servants too, awaited my orders in attitudes expressive of the profoundest humility. Later he describes how when he's in this relationship with Okiku-san, he comes back uh, uh, to surprise her one day. Today, I arrived unexpectedly at the house in the midst of burning noonday heat. At the foot of the stairs lay Chrysanthem's wooden shoes and her sandals of varnished leather. In our rooms upstairs, all was open to the air. Bamboo blinds hung on the sunny side and through this transparency came warm air and golden threads of light. Today the flowers Chrysanthem had placed in the bronze vases were lotus, and as I entered my eyes fell upon their rosy cups. According to her usual custom, Chrysanthem was lying flat on the floor enjoying her daily siesta. She was sleeping face down upon the mats, her high headdress and tortoiseshell pins standing out boldly from the rest of her horizontal figure. The train of her tunic appeared to prolong her delicate little body, like the tail of a bird. 
Her arms were stretched crosswise, the sleeves spread out like wings, and her long guitar lay beside her. She looked like a dead fairy. Still more did she resemble some great blue dragonfly, which having alighted upon the spot, some unkind hand had pinned to the floor. What a pity this little chrysanthemum cannot always be asleep. She is really extremely decorative seen in this manner, and like this, she doesn't bore me, the terribleness of this, <laughs> this man. Who knows what could be passing in that little head and heart, if only I had the means of finding out. But strange to say, since we have kept house together, instead of advancing in my study of the Japanese language, I have neglected it. Seated on my veranda, my eyes wandered over the temples and cemeteries spread out at my feet, over the woods and green mountains of Nagasaki lying below in the sunlight. The cicadas were chirping their loudest, the strident noise trembling feverishly in the hot air. Behind me comes a faint and melancholy strain of music, melancholy enough to make one shiver and shrill, shrill as the song of the grasshoppers. It began to make itself heard very softly at first, then growing louder and louder, and rising in the silence of the noonday like the diminutive wail of some poor Japanese soul in pain and anguish. It was Chrysanthem and her guitar waking together. It pleased me that the idea should have occurred to her to greet me with music instead of eagerly hastening to wish me good morning. At no time have I ever given myself the trouble to pretend the slightest affection for her and a certain coldness even has grown up between us. But today I turn to her with a smile and wave my hand for her to continue. Go on, it amuses me to listen to your quaint little impromptu. It is singular that the music of this essentially merry people should be so plaintive. But undoubtedly that which Chrysanthem is playing at this moment is worth listening to. Whence can it have come to her? What unutterable dreams forever hidden from me surge beneath her ivory brow when she plays or sings in this manner. So this was one of the very earliest then uh, versions of what uh, the, the story came to be. Finally, Lottie tells Okiki-san that he has to leave. And the day before his departure, he goes to the house for a final farewell. He writes, I mount the stairs on tiptoe and stop at the sound of singing. Mingled with the sound is a noise I cannot understand. Chink, 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 a clear metallic ring as of coins flung vigorously on the floor. She has not heard me come in. In our great white room, emptied and swept out, she is sitting all alone with her back to the door. On the floor are spread out all the fine silver dollars, which, according to our agreement, I had given her the night before. With the competent dexterity of an old money changer, she fingers them, turns them over, and armed with a little mallet, rings them vigorously against her ear, singing I know not what little pensive bird-like song. And Lottie is amused, knowing he can leave without a trace of guilt. Readers all over Europe, of course, read this book avidly, eager for details of this exotic country. He does make the point that Chrysanthem was not a geisha. In none of the stories recorded from Japan are these wives called geisha. Geisha were women with high artistic qualities for whom casual sexual relationships were generally not possible. 
nor were the young women prostitutes, but girls of poor families who entered into temporary marriages for money to help their families. Sometimes called tea house girls, they sang and danced as entertainers in traditional tea houses. We in the West, I think, have a very hard time comprehending the many distinctions between different classifications of women in the 19th century in Japan. So with stories such as these of Siebold and Lottie, the theme of Madama Butterfly had been born. Lottie's tale was quickly turned into an opera by Charles Messager, which premiered in Paris in 1893. Messager made one important change to Lottie's account. Chrysanthem in the opera is motivated by love, not money. The paths of Messager and Giacomo Puccini, who was working on Manon Lescaut at the time, crossed in Italy when Messager was working on Madame Chrysanthem. The two men must have discussed the topic when they met. The timing of Lottie's tale and Messager's opera was opportune because Japan had been closed for so long. Once it opened, everything Japanese became popular and fashionable in the West in what came to be known as Japonisme. At the end of the 1890s, American homes were furnished in the Japanese style with lacquerware and painted screens decorating the rooms. I'm sure some of your generations before remember that. The flower and the willow world had intrigued artists and writers just at a time when European artists were actually seeking new forms and direction for their work. It is said that James McNeil Whistler said that he, quote, grafted onto the tired stump of European art the vital shoots of Oriental art. So that's the time period we're in. While Western governments set up advantageous terms for themselves in Japanese ports, the Japanese balanced this inequality with massive exports of arts and crafts to satisfy the West's need to know about Japan. These were years of American imperialism when Teddy Roosevelt's doctrine decreed, walk softly, but carry a big stick. American naval ships patrolled the Japanese coast and acted as support to, to support the merchant vessels. Pinkerton's ship would have anchored in Nagasaki Harbor to maintain a U.S. presence and could have stayed a few months while trade negotiations were underway. The story of Madame Butterfly, however, the opera, finds a more immediate source in Jenny Correll, whose husband, Irvin, ran the American Methodist Mission and a school in Nagasaki between 1892 and 97. Jenny reported that she heard the story of Chocho-san, or Madame Butterfly, when living in Nagasaki with her husband. Many years later, she came back to the States and gave a series of talks on Japan, retelling Butterfly's story in these words. This is what she wrote. On the hill opposite ours lived a tea house girl. Her name was Chosan, Miss Butterfly. She was so sweet and delicate that everyone was in love with her. In time, we learned she had a lover. This wasn't strange, for all tea house girls have lovers, if they can get and hold them. Chosan's young man was quite nice, but of a temperamental, moody, lonely disposition. One evening, there was quite a sensation when it was learned that poor little Chosan and her baby had been deserted. The man had promised to return, had even arranged a signal so Chosan would know when his ship had come in 
Already here we have the germ of the beginning of the humming chorus, right? Right from the beginning. But the little girl wife waited in vain. Many an hour and many a long night did she peer from her soji over the lovely harbor, but to no purpose. He never returned. When Jenny and her husband returned to the state, she told the story of Butterfly to her brother, who was a lawyer and a writer. John Luther Long published the story as Madame Butterfly in the Century Illustrated magazine in Philadelphia in 1898. In his novel, Long took many of the, the details of Japanese customs from Lottie's earlier story, but he changed many of the events surrounding Butterfly herself, focusing now on the drama of her story. For instance, Butterfly starts out knowing that Pinkerton is paying for her part in the marriage arrangement, but then falls in love with him, believing that since Pinkerton continues to support her and does not divorce her, that then she is still the wife of an American, and he will return to her. Long suggests that even though Butterfly attends the American mission, she never truly leaves her Shinto Buddhist faith behind and returns to it in the end when she chooses to die with honor because she can no longer live with honor. Here from John Luther Long is how Butterfly attempts to cross the cultural gap with Pinkerton, explaining her need for ancestors. She's talking to him. This is just before the wedding ceremony at the beginning. This is uh, John Luther Long. Mr. B.F. Pinkerton, it was this, among other things, he had taught her to call him. I like if you permit my august ancestors visit me. I like very much if you please permit that to me. Her hair had been newly dressed for the occasion, and she had stuck a poppy in it. Besides, she put her hand on his arm, a brave thing for her to do, and smiled wistfully up at him. And when you know what Cho San's smile was like, and her hand and its touch, you will wonder how Pinkerton resisted her. However, he laughed at her, good-naturedly always, and said, No, we can't adopt a whole regiment of back numbers, you know. You're back number enough for me. And though he kissed her, she went away and cried again. And Japanese girls do not often cry. He could not understand how important this concession was to her. It must be confessed he didn't try to understand. The American consul with a little partisanship explained to him that in Japan filial affection is a paramount motive and that these ancestors, living and dead, were his wife's sole link to such eternal life as she could hope for. He trusted Pinkerton would not forget this. He would provide her with a new motive then, Pinkerton said, perhaps meaning himself, if she must have one. Pinkerton expounded on what he called the easier Western plan of salvation, seriously too, considering that all his communications with her were touched with whimsy. This was inevitable for Pinkerton. After all, she was quite an impossible little thing outside of lacquer and paint, but he struck deeper than he knew, for she went secretly to the church of the missionary who served on the opposite hill and heard the same thing and learned, moreover, that she might adopt this new religion at any time she chose, even at the 11th hour. She went out joyously, not to adopt his religion, it is true, but to hold it in reserve if her relatives should remain obdurate. Pinkerton, to his relief, 
heard no more of it. You'll remember this then from that scene at the beginning of the wedding ceremony. She has this gorgeous costume with the long sleeves. And ladies didn't carry purses in those days, but they had little pockets in these long sleeves. So this is where she keeps her rouge and her, her makeup, a little mirror, and these little otaki, the figures of her ancestors. So let's hear now from the opera that section where she talks to Pinkerton about being able to keep these little figurines. Thank you. also added elements that make the story a tragedy, going far beyond the documentary style of Lottie to reveal the moral injustice of the story. Following the glorious love duet that ends the first act, Pinkerton stays some months and then sails out when his ship leaves. He promises Butterfly he will return and will send her money to keep their little house, but he does not come back for a long time. Butterfly learns she is pregnant and gives birth to their son, but she has no way of telling Pinkerton about the child. Two years after his departure, Butterfly still lives in hope and sings the exquisite Unbel D aria as she imagines how Pinkerton's return will be. She plans it all with Suzuki, her companion and maid. And this is how John Luther Long describes this. I'm going to read this, the original um, John Luther Long first, to give you a sense then of how the librettist takes that section and transforms it into the text, the libretto of Unbeldi as we know it. She's talking to Suzuki. And what do you think we'd better be doing when he come? She was less forcible now because less certain. This required planning to get the utmost felicity out of it what she always strove for. 
Me, me, I think I dunno, the maid confessed diplomatically. Oh, you dunno, of course you dunno, whichever. Well, I'm gonna tell you. The plan had been born and matured that instant in her active little brain. Just recollect, this is a secret among you and me. We don't tell that Mr. Trouble, that's the name that they have called the child, Dolore or Sorrow, he don't keep no secret. Well, listen, we're going to watch with that spying glass till his ship get in. Then we're going to put cherry blossoms everywhere. If it is night, we're going to hang up about most 1,000 lanterns, about most 1,000, and then we wait. Just when we see him coming up the hill, so, 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 she lifts up her kimono and strides masculinely about the apartment. Then we hide behind the soji, where there are holes to peep. She glances about to find them. Alas, they are all mended shut, but she savagely runs her finger through the paper. We soon make some. So she made another for the maid. Chocho-san paused ecstatically, but the maid would not have it so. She had seen them practice such divine foolery before, very like two reckless children, but never had she seen anything with such dramatic promise as this. Oh, and what he say then, she begged, what he do? Madame Butterfly was re-energized by the maid's applause. Ah, she said, he don't say, he just kiss us about three, seven, ten thousand times, and he embrace us two thousand times, both must until we got to make him stop on account he might kill us. That's very bad to be killed kissing. Her extravagant mood infected the maid. She had long begun to wonder whether, after all, this American passion for affection was altogether despicable. She remembered that her mistress had begun by regarding it thus, yet now she was the most daringly happy woman in Japan. So that's the original text. Now we get the aria, which is this section, and this is what it is. It's in Italian, of course, but the English is she sings with Suzuki again. One fine day we will see a wisp of smoke rising at the furthest edge of the sea, and then the ship will appear, and then the white ship will enter the harbor and fire its gun in salute. Do you see? He has come. I won't go down to meet him, not me. I'll station myself there on the rim of the hill and I'll wait. I'll wait a long time and the long wait won't bother me. And emerging from the city's crowd, a man, a tiny dot will make his way up the hill. Who will it be? And when he arrives, what will he say? What will he say? He will call from a distance, butterfly, I will make no answer, but will keep hidden, partly as a joke and partly so I won't die at our first meeting. And he, a little worried, will call Tiny Wife, Fragrance of Verbana, the names he called me when he came. All this will happen, I promise you. As for me, I await with unshaken faith.
This recording is uh, Anna Moffo and Cesare Valletti on RCA Victor. Uh, Eric Leinsdorf conducts the Rome Opera Orchestra and Chorus. Long added a crucial scene which was not in Lotti and which was also excised from Puccini's opera, in which Butterfly goes to the US Consul Sharpless to ask for news about Pinkerton. A blonde American woman enters the office just before her and tells Sharpless to send a telegram to her husband, Pinkerton, saying she has seen the child, Butterfly's son, and hopes to meet with the mother and take the child the following day. Butterfly overhears this, and in the cruelest possible way, learns the truth. Sharpless attempts to protect her, but to no avail. The American woman sees the Japanese girl and exclaims, how very charming, how lovely you are. Will you kiss me, you pretty plaything? Butterfly went home and attempted suicide with her father's knife. But Suzuki came in and bound up her wound. And Long ends his tale this way. When Mrs. Pinkerton called the next day at the little house on Higashi Hill, it was quite empty. Butterfly, her maid Suzuki, and the child had vanished. The ending of the opera, of course, is, is quite different. So Long modeled Pinkerton on Pierre Lotti, that first writer, eager to describe the Japanese way of life. In Long's story, Pinkerton gives no thought to the suffering he causes. Many of the details and Puccini's libretto also were based on Long's account, and they are pretty well accurate. The 999-year lease on a house with an easy get-out clause the marriage arrangement for money that terminated when the man left, the use of a special sword with which Japanese women of the samurai class to which Chocho-san actually belonged would commit suicide. Long's publication attracted David Belasco, a colorful playwright and successful producer who transformed the book into a play. The play was unique because of Belasco's brilliant staging of Butterfly's Long Night Vigil, in which the actress had to hold the audience's attention without speaking and by lighting effects alone. The vigil was presented as a 15-minute scene in which Belasco's staging depicted the setting of the sun, the passing of the starry night, and sunrise the following day. And this we know as the humming chorus in the opera. When Butterfly and Suzuki see the ship sailing into the harbor, they believe Pinkerton is returning, and so he is. But he is coming back with an American wife to take his son to America. He does run up the hill, but stops on seeing the little house where he and Butterfly had been so happy. Let's hear now how Pinkerton's moment of consciousness is when he sings, Adio Fiorito Asil, Farewell, flowery refuge of gladness and love. I will constantly see her gentle face and be cruelly tortured by her memory. He cannot face Butterfly, so he turns and runs.
That's the running music as he heads out of there. <laughs> Left alone, Butterfly learns the truth and kills herself. Now, this tragic scenario is sadly all too familiar to all of us, to us too in our day. Following wars, there are always children born to local women whose fathers are part of the conquering powers. Following the Vietnam War, President Gerald Ford ordered Operation Babylift in 1975 to take orphans and abandoned Eurasian infants and children from Vietnam to America where they were adopted. Typically, an Asian woman with the child of a foreigner would be ostracized by her own people and would have had to struggle mightily to survive. That dilemma still exists, and sadly, it seems always will, as long as there are wars. A year after the play's premiere in New York in 1899, Puccini saw a performance in London and was fascinated by the vigil scene. It sparked all his creative genes. Unable to speak any English, he was visually enthralled by the work. So much so that following the performance, he went backstage, threw his arms around Belasco, and begged for permission to make the play into an opera. Belasco is reported to have responded, I agreed at once and told him he could make any sort of contract because it was impossible to discuss arrangements with an impulsive Italian who has tears in his eyes and both of his arms around your neck. <laughs> Belasco had his great career here, of course, in, uh, in New York, and the Belasco Theatre is still here. This is the same Belasco we're talking about. So the opera that we know and love premiered at La Scala in Milan in 1904, and it was first seen here at the Met in 1907, with Puccini in the audience and Caruso and Geraldine Farrar singing the leading roles. It must have been incredible. So, so you can see how far we have come from the history of the opening of Japan to the outside world to a fictional description of Madame Chrysanthème whose story is set against real descriptions of the culture and rituals of Japan. Then comes the fragment of a story of a tea house girl, of Butterfly and the man who abandoned her from a missionary's wife whose brother takes up the tale in the States. David Belasco with the, an eye to see as to what, with a great eye for seeing what's successful on stage, took Long's story and turned it into a play. Puccini wrote the opera. The rest is history, so to speak. But now I would like to come to the most fascinating part of this tale, via a book that states how Madame Butterfly and her child, whom she called Trouble, Sorrow, or Dolore, actually lived. I should preface this by saying the thesis from which this comes is Jan von Ridge's book, Madame Butterfly, Japonisme, Puccini, and the Search for the Real Chocho-san. This book, I promise you, has been dissected, discussed, and criticized by reviewers who are not entirely, all of them, convinced of Van Ridge's argument. You can buy the book or get it out of the library and make up your own mind. I must say, I was impressed. The documentation and the photographs make it hard to refute. Jan Van Rick was a lawyer and a senior foreign diplomat who lived and worked in both Washington, D.C. and Tokyo. He researched the subject and carefully documents it. So let's see what he has to say, bearing in mind this may or may not be gospel truth, but then this wouldn't be the first time that such a thing has happened in opera, right? 
for those of you who were here yesterday when we talked about Elizabeth I, it's not exactly a history story. And also let us remind ourselves perhaps that the line between myth and reality is often very thin. Van Ridge opens his narrative with a little poem by Basho Matsuo. Toward the end of the day, I stopped at a small tea house where a young woman named Butterfly handed me a small piece of white silk and asked me to write a poem, choosing her name as the subject. How beautifully this captures the essence of the time. The story begins with a Scottish merchant, Thomas Glover, who settled in Nagasaki in 1859. His story is well known and documented. Thomas had a common-law wife called Tesuro, with whom he remained all his life. It was always assumed that the boy, Thomas Aburo, who lived with the Glovers, was Tesuro's son. But it turns out that may not be the truth. He was the son of Kaga Maki, a young woman who lived in Nagasaki, who had a son with a foreigner, who abandoned her, and subsequently she gave up the child to his father's family. The boy's name originally was Shinasaburo, and his birth certificate registered his birth as December the 8th, 1870. At the age of six, the child was adopted by Tusuro, Glover's wife. In 1877, Kagamaki married a Japanese man and she moved away, but later on getting a divorce, she returned to Nagasaki and died there in 1906. There's extraordinary irony in this. She died two years after the premiere of Puccini's opera, and she had no way of knowing that that story was her story. Her child was educated by the Glover family. He attended a prestigious college in Tokyo, graduated in 1888. In 1891, he was enrolled as a student here at the University of Pennsylvania, studying biology and natural history before returning to Japan. In 1894, Thomas Aburo lived with his adoptive mother, Tesuro, and worked at the trading house in Nakazaki. He now lived a double kind of life, living as a Japanese, but also listed on the, list, uh, on the list of foreigners to Japan. In 1899, he married Nakona Waka, a young woman with a Japanese mother and an English merchant father, a background just like his own. The couple became part of a local bourgeoisie and hosted parties for both Japanese and foreigners. As World War I approached, however, they became increasingly isolated by both cultures. Now, if Kagamaki is the real source of Madame Butterfly and the mother, Thomas Aburo, her child, who was the father? And why was he adopted into the Glover household? It appears that Thomas Glover, Tesuro's husband, was the father, since they had adopted the child, but it seems this is not the case. Thomas Glover had come from Scotland and was a successful merchant who helped in the economic development of Japan. He lived in Nagasaki and then Tokyo before dying in 1911. He had two brothers, Alex, who was in Nagasaki that year, the year of Thomas Aburo's birth, but Alex eventually moved to America. The other brother was Alfred. He came to Nagasaki to work with his brother. Thomas, the older brother, was away on a business trip that December when Thomas Aburo was conceived. 
but both Alex and Alfred were in the city. Either could have met Madame Butterfly. This, of course, was a fictitious name to hide the young woman's real name, Kagamaki. She worked singing and dancing in a tea house, one of the very few places foreign men could meet Japanese women. The consensus now is that Alfred was the father since Thomas Aburo stayed with him when the rest of the family moved to Tokyo. He worked with Alfred's company and made arrangements for Alfred's funeral. Neither Alex nor Alfred were in a position to adopt a child when the boy was very small, so their generous brother Thomas took in the Eurasian child, his nephew, into his household and raised him as a beloved son, making him his heir. In the early years, the Kaga family, but not the mother, were present at Glover parties, as old photographs show. The issue as to who was the boy's father is the one that most troubles critics. There's no hard proof that either Alex or Alfred was the father. For Thomas Aburo, being raised in two cultures took its toll. He clearly felt alienated from a very young age. In school, he dressed in traditional Japanese clothes, but switched to Western dress when he was in his 20s and actually called himself Tom Glover. Meeting his Scottish and American Glover relations cannot have been easy for the young man, you can imagine. When his adopted father Thomas died, the young man's name disappeared from the foreigner's list and he chose to be Japanese. He and his wife and other friends of mixed parentage became increasingly isolated in the 1930s and 40s. The last photograph of him was taken in 1941, taken in his garden, seated beside the Mitsubishi directors and showing a man of deep sadness. In August 1945, the bomb dropped on Nagasaki. During the chaotic days that followed, a neighbor went to Thomas Aburo's house, opened the door and found he had committed suicide by hanging himself. Caught between two worlds, he had at last found a way to resolve the conflict. So perhaps for all our tears, for Chocho-san and Madame Butterfly, the true tragedy is that of her son, Thomas Aburo, who died of his own hand following the conflagration of the nuclear attack. So that's all in the book if you want to read it. It's a fascinating short book. Uh, do read it. But Lest I leave you in this state of deep <laughs> sadness and tears, <laughs> I'm going to play for you one of um, Puccini's most glorious love duets in which a blissful butterfly is united with her beloved and handsome American Pinkerton on her wedding day. You know, it's true of most of Puccini's operas in the first act, everything is wonderful, everyone falls in love and paradise is within reach. Everything goes downhill from the second <laughs> act onwards. So let's play then finally a little of the love duet from the end of the first act of Madame Butterfly. Thank you.
So with that glorious music, I'm going to send you on your way across to the house to see the performance. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy the offer. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to episode 26 of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. I hope you enjoyed gaining these historical insights as much as I did. And as Desiree mentioned, she also presented a talk on Donizetti's Roberto Devereux that we are very excited to be presenting on the podcast next week, leading up to the Mets live in HD broadcast taking place on April 16th. So be sure to look out for that one. We are very happy to be presenting this podcast entirely free to our audience, but hope that you will consider supporting our educational efforts here at the Guild by making a donation at www.metguild.org podcast. The Met Opera Guild is a 501c3 organization, so all donations are entirely tax deductible. And if you feel unable to make a donation, you can also support us by leaving a review in iTunes. We always love hearing your feedback, and we thank you in advance for supporting our podcast in whatever way you can. Thanks again for listening. I'm Naomi Baratera, your host, and I look forward to being back with you next week for episode 27 and Roberto Devereux. <laughs>